This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors of politics and government. We're not going to talk about the Biden-Trump election totals today. Instead, let's note that Michigan's chief medical executive, Dr. Joni Caldoun, said this week that with more than 10 percent of COVID-19 tests coming back positive, it means that, quote, this virus is out of control, unquote. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer called this, quote, the worst week of COVID we've ever had, unquote. Whitmer said during a COVID-19 update press conference that while her team is, quote, strongly considering all actions that we can take, unquote, she did not specifically announce any new restrictions on the prospect of a stay-at-home order. Whitmer was asked why she was not issuing one right now, at least She hasn't as of the time I'm speaking. And she said the, quote, most important thing that we want to convey today is that the trajectory that we are on is dire and it is very serious, unquote. The governor also was asked about restricting smaller social gatherings even further to a ban on any sort of gathering of people who don't already live with one another. She said that, quote, If these numbers continue on the trajectory that we're on, we will be having to take additional steps. There's no question, unquote. Whitmer was asked about working with the legislature to address the pandemic, and she said that while the legislature has shown some interest, quote, in having a seat at the table, unquote, the codification of a mask mandate in state law that she's asked for has been, quote, taken off the table, unquote. She said there's still a mask mandate via the epidemic orders issued by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, but that is not as strong as a law. Now, let's take a look at something else. There is no need to write an obituary for the Republican Party. The urge by some for a death notice is no more valid today than it was when written for the GOP after Richard Nixon's resignation in 1974 in the wake of Watergate or Barry Goldwater's landslide defeat in 1964. Republicans this year, in fact, gained seats in the U.S. House of Representatives putting the GOP within striking distance of majority status after the midterm elections of 2022 when the party not occupying the White House historically picks up seats. Republicans kept control of every state legislative chamber throughout the country that they held going into this year's election, and they added control of both chambers in New Hampshire. The National Democratic Redistricting Committee, headed by former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder, largely fizzled. In 2018, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania elected Democratic governors with a redistricting veto pen. In Michigan, however, voters in 2018 approved a constitutional amendment to create an independent redistricting commission. 
Republicans may find that the law of unintended consequences may be working for them, not against them. Maps drawn by the Independent Redistricting Commission in Michigan could end up much more favorable than if the Michigan Supreme Court, after a legislature gubernatorial deadlock, was called upon to draw maps by Democrat-nominated justices now firmly in the majority, four to three, after the 2020 election. Already, tension is building within the Democratic conference in the U.S. House of Representatives as Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat from Virginia, heatedly pointed out to her colleagues that the agenda of the so-called Squad, which includes left-wing freshman Democrats, including Michigan's Rashida Tlaib, who backed enactment of a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and defunding the police scared many voters into thinking congressional Democrats would pursue a, quote, socialist agenda, unquote. Spanberger claimed that such fear was the reason why House Democrats may have lost as many as a dozen seats this year. And all the results are not counted yet. On the other side of the U.S. Capitol, Democratic challengers had been expected to score major pickups in the U.S. Senate. That forecast never materialized. GOP incumbents in Maine, North Carolina, Iowa, and Montana all were reelected. Republicans currently have 50 seats to 48 seats for Democrats going into two runoff Senate elections in Georgia to be held on January 5th, 2021. If Democrats sweep those two elections, yes, a 50-50 tie would give the new vice president, Kamala Harris, a tie-breaking vote to organize the Senate. But if Dems lose even one of those seats, the Republicans will continue to control the chamber. The anticipated progressive effort to abolish the filibuster on legislation, even with two Senate wins in Georgia, is still likely to fail. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, has already announced on CNN TV he would vote against such a rule change and perhaps would be joined by other Senate Democrats like traditionalists such as John Tester, a Democrat from Montana. That means no statehood bills for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico reaching a final vote, which, if enacted, would surely hand Democrats four additional votes in the U.S. Senate and five more Democratic votes in the U.S. House of Representatives. With a 60-vote filibuster rule still applying to legislation, do not expect to see in the next session of Congress a change in the size of the U.S. Supreme Court from nine justices to 13 or even 15 or any increase in the number of federal circuit courts or appeals judges. A retired attorney and judicial analyst, Bob LeBrant, now retired, in rural Perry, northeast of Lansing, says this, and I'm going to quote, with a 6-3 conservative U.S. Supreme Court in place for some time to come, 
do not expect to see the restoration of the pre-clearance requirement under the Federal Voting Rights Act that fell in 2013 after the so-called Shelby County decision or the reversal of the 2010 Citizens United decision involving corporate political spending or the 2018 Janus decision, which prohibits mandatory agency fees by public sector unions or the 2019 Benesic decision, which involves federal courts treating partisan redistricting cases as a political question not suited for federal judicial resolution. LeBrant continues, and I'm quoting, if the legislative filibuster rule is maintained, do not expect to see organized labor's ultimate goal over the past three quarters of a century realized, and that is the repeal of Section 14B of the 1947 Taft-Hartley Law, which allows states to enact right-to-work laws, such as Michigan did back in 2012. Filibusters stopped repeal legislation in 1965 and 1978 when Democrats controlled both congressional chambers and the presidency. So, folks, uh, the Republican Party is far from dead. It lives on and will have quite a bit of clout in the next session of Congress. I'm going to be back in a minute with our next guest. Please stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. As promised, we have returned, and we are most fortunate to have with us on the line Susie Avery, who is co-director of the Michigan Political Leadership Program. Susie Avery, thanks for being our guest. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, You know, we've known each other a long time and gone through a lot of elections, haven't we? Uh, Absolutely. But none uh, is perhaps uh, dazzling uh, in various different ways as this year's. Uh, Let me just start out by asking you, what is the Michigan Political Leadership Program? You're co-director of it. Uh, How old is it? I mean, what did this program at Michigan State University hope to achieve when it started out? And uh, has it succeeded in its mission as far as you're concerned? Well, you know, it was it was established back in 1992, really in, in a response to when we passed term limits here in Michigan. And suddenly people started realizing, well, wait a minute, uh, maybe with seniority and the hairy gas of the world um, that used to be there for, for quite a while, we're going to be there anymore. So MSU started a very interesting program, this Michigan Political Leadership Program. Um, and Mich- I am one of the co-directors. We have two co-directors, myself, who's a Republican, Steve Jabachman, who's a Democrat. They decided to be, and it still holds up, one of the few bipartisan um, uh, trainings for um, elected office in the United States. And MPLP selects 24 people from around Michigan to take part in its, uh, we've had several awards, uh, these nationally uh, recognized um, awards that train leaders in um, personal leadership, 
policy analysis and good governing. Now, 24 people, you're thinking, oh, that's, that's real interesting. But of the 24 people, 12 are Republicans, 12 are Democrats. Sometimes we have a mixing of independents in there. But within there, um, of the 12 Republicans, uh, six are going to be Republican women, six are going to be Republican men, and the same on the Democratic side. Six Democratic men, six Republican men. And since its founding, um, we have more, we've had about 700 people go through um, this training since 1992, and more than half of, now we call them fellows, we don't call them students or whatever, we call them fellows, um, have gained elected or appointed positions over the year. And um, so we have had a tremendous success because, I can report this year, we're on a winning streak. MPLP alumni uh, now make up 10%, 10% of the Michigan legislature. Um, and um, the this year, that, and that's been that way for the past four years. That's two presidential elections. This year, um, we um, actually re-elected five Dem, uh, five five Republicans and four Democrats, and about uh, 25, 26. All of the we don't have all the results in um, to local, county, um, or 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 judicial offices. Actually, we have several um, who have been now elected judges. So we consider ourselves. Um, a, a pretty good way to um, uphold democracy in a very bipartisan kind of, of, of method where people can learn to speak to the other side of the aisle, learn from them, and not only that, have a much better idea of what's involved in running for office and then being successful in running for office. Yeah, so when these uh, fellows are selected, uh are they all already in some kind of local office or are some of them just private citizens who've never run for anything before but think maybe they'd like to? Yeah, you know, most of them that now we, we, we have had a few that have been elected to some local offices, uh, but most of our fellows have not run for anything. I mean, they haven't run for anything. In fact, some of them have come in because they were just had uh, terrible conversations at their Thanksgiving table or something, arguing, <laughs> or or they have gone out with their family and their family has said, hey, if you're so hot to trot on this issue, why don't you run for it? And um, then they start thinking about it and think, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of, of training programs out there with political parties, but for you to actually be a leader that can um, cross the aisle and actually be successful and pass legislation or be good on your local library board or your local school board or your county commission, you really have to learn how to uh, not only what your beliefs are, but how to run a, a campaign and how to talk to a lot of people from a lot of different perspectives. And uh, that's what MPLP, one of the things that we're, we're really proud that we do in a bipartisan way. We don't we don't concentrate on, oh, you're wonderful because you're a Republican. Oh, you're wonderful or terrible because you're a Republican. We, we, we sponsor discussions that we feel are meaningful about policy and, and leadership and good governing. So what's the structure of the program? I mean, how do the fellows go through it? I mean, it's like maybe nine or ten months out of the year, and they meet like once a month, as I understand it. Is that right? Yep. 
Yeah, we do. We 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 take um we take everybody for the ones that are chosen for uh, ten weekends throughout the year. One um, starting in February, um, once once a month, and for a usually Friday night and Saturday morning during um, the uh, the COVID. Sometimes that has to be a little bit more flexible, but during that time, um, we. We had them stay. Now, this was before COVID. We had them stay overnight. And, and this is the interesting part of this program that's never been attempted before in any program. Um, when you go to your hotel room, which we, we put you up in a hotel room on that Friday night, uh, we put a Republican man with a Democratic man in the same hotel room. <laughs> and, this, and, and, and they change. And, and everyone says, oh. My, what happened, you know, and what we have found is this really is, is, has been tremendous for the program because not only do you establish a network of people across the aisle, but you also start conversations that you might not because this is a very one-on-one kind of conversation to have with someone. And um, you, you kind of start discussing issues. And we, we hear all the time about people talking till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. I mean, you don't have your family there. You don't have your husband, your wife, your children, your mother, your father, whatever. It's, it's just you and somebody else. And you start talking about issues. And I'm telling you, it, it, it is so effective in figuring out what you really stand for and what you really believe in. And um, it's just a wonderful program. And I think the the proof of it is how many people that we have put through the program that have been not only elected, but if you look at any of the bills that have gone through the Michigan legislature right now, you will find the majority of them have been sponsored by MPLP grads. Wow. Uh, I'm looking at a list here, and I see nine members of the Michigan House of Representatives, I think, were reelected this year who went through MPLP. I think you had a judge either elected or reelected, and you have 14 that were elected or reelected on a local level. I mean, this wouldn't have all been just from the previous year's class, would it? I mean, it no, probably no, stretched no. And over in fact, time. In fact, uh, the latest list that we just got yesterday, I think we have um, – almost uh, 24 on the on the local level and and not only is this county commission but it, but it's also very very important races um for instance um we had someone I know who's close to you Josie Ballinger who was absolutely phenomenal in our class and of uh, last year and she actually won uh, for her Traverse City area public school board of education she's now a trustee that is a very, very difficult job because she had to overcome an incumbent there. And um, how do you how do you do that without being negative and just coming out with other things? Well, in MTLP, um, hopefully, um, you know our, our our alumni realize that there are different ways to be elected. And I mean, she was elected first out of the box. I mean, this is the first time she's run. And uh, not only did did she win, but on her coattails, she had two other people. They they really knocked everybody. Um, uh, out of in terms of, of being an incumbent on that board. They did a terrific job. And also we've had people who have just didn't like what was going on in their in their in their local community. We had a guy uh, run for Waterford Township Supervisor and, and he won. That was his first time out. Um, we've got county treasurers. We've got um, uh, you got you know. a lot. You got a lot. And I got to tell you, I want to keep on going, talking about this. We'll have you back sometime in the future. But we're out of time on this segment. It goes that fast. So thank you, Susie Avery, 
co-director of the Michigan Political Leadership Program at Michigan State University, an incredibly successful program. Thank you, Susie Avery. Thank you, thank you. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us Abdul El Sayed. And I think many of our listeners will remember, he ran for the Democratic nomination for governor in 2018. He finished a very respectable second to somebody named Gretchen Whitmer, who became the governor that November 2018. And he has a medical degree. He is Dr. El Sayed. Uh, I think he was at one point uh, the chief uh, health officer for the city of Detroit. He can correct me if I'm wrong. Abdul El Sayed, thanks for being our guest. Yeah, really, uh, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, look, you had a very exciting time two years ago in 2018. I know you've been very active since, but let me just ask you, what have you been doing these past two years leading up to now? And, of course, there are enormous challenges ahead of us with this COVID-19 virus still inhabiting, unfortunately, our state. I know you're going to have something to say about that, but what have you been doing the last couple of years? That's right, Bill. What, What brought me to politics uh, is a focus on the fact that not everybody in our country, not everybody in our world has access to a long, healthy life. And that's not just because they don't have medical care. That's also because they don't have basic things like good housing or a good job that pays a living wage and puts a good roof over their head, or the fact that too many people go without a strong educational background. Um, and I, I saw uh, a run for office as a way to potentially do something about that if I should win, but also, you know, the, the ability to, to build out a conversation that I hope to continue to have uh, with folks in Michigan and, 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 frankly, all over the country about what we can be doing to invest in the kind of society that dignifies all of us. And since the race ended, I've been continuing that conversation on. I host a podcast called America Dissected, uh, which Crooked Media focused on uh, the, the interaction between health and society. Uh, I wrote a book uh, that came out back in March uh, called Healing Politics diagnoses our uh, national insecurity epidemic and the empathy politics we need to treat it. I've been doing a lot of teaching, uh, taught at Wayne State University and, and now teaching at the University of Michigan as a Deroy visiting professor, um, and, um, and also uh, run a pack called Southpaw. We just finished out uh, a, a pretty serious uh, GOTV effort, um, made about 500,000 phone calls, sent 1.5 million texts to uh, voters uh, who you know were, were not likely to show up in 2016 to make sure uh, that they came out in uh, 2020. Um, and uh, and then uh, other than that, I, I also work uh, with CNN as a contributor there. So I, I've kept pretty busy, uh, but all of it focused on the same things that, that led to, um, to to my, my interest in run uh, for governor in uh, 2018. You are a very busy guy. Do you see running for political office sometime again in the future? Maybe someday. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, Bill, I, the, the, the one job that I have that nobody else can do is uh, is be a father to my, my little girl. And she's three years old. So uh, I think a lot about um, about my responsibilities there and my responsibilities as a husband and partner to uh, my wife, who's also a doctor. Um, and so, you know, uh, any any sort of future run will have to have to go through the, the two most important people in my life. Uh, but maybe someday. You know, this new independent redistricting commission may create a congressional district down there in southeast Michigan that you might be interested in. What about that? 
You know, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see uh, what that looks like. But you know, I haven't made any real decisions about um, about what's next for me. I'm really focused right now on the COVID-19 pandemic and doing everything I can to uh, to support efforts to take it down. I'm, I'm really worried. Uh, I'll be honest with you about uh, where we stand with the surge in COVID cases right now. The overwhelming uh, of, 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 of too many hospitals across our state and our country, uh, and the fact that you know we've got Thanksgiving and, and Black Friday coming up, which um, you know could really um, spell a, a really really challenging winter for us. Let's talk about that a little bit more. How do you feel the state has handled the coronavirus pandemic so far this year? I mean, we're like eight months into it, really beginning in March confronting it. And we know about the controversy between Governor Whitmer and the legislature and everything that's happened here in Michigan. But what is your reading of that and what the state did and what it should be doing differently? Yeah, well, I'm a scientist and, and I'm, uh, I'm looking for leadership that sticks to the science and does the things that the science tells us could reduce the spread and the, the burden of death to this disease. And I've got to hand it to uh, Governor Whitmer, she stepped in and made really hard political decisions because she was following the science. I'm worried a lot about the fact that now she uh, does not have the same kind of emergency powers because uh, of a decision by the Supreme Court and uh, a lot of the pressure from um, the, the, the legislature. And you know, to me, it's not a partisan political issue. This is about whether or not uh, our governor has the capacity to do what it takes to prevent the spread of a deadly disease uh, that has already taken thousands of, of Michigander lives. Um, we need action, and we need action now. And the thing about um, about this pandemic, where we are and, and where we stand with this uh, nearly uncontrolled surge, is that you know you're looking at data that is is actually five or seven days old. So what we see today uh, tells us about the the new cases five or seven days ago, because it takes time, of course. Uh, for symptoms to show up and a test to come back. And the thing about this disease is that it can double in two and a half days when it's spreading its fastest. And so five or seven days is two or three doubling times, which maybe means that you are looking at an eightfold difference in the degree of spread. And I'm really worried about the fact that we're already behind in stopping uh, the spread right now, and we've got to do what it takes. And I know a lot of folks have sort of seen this as a political issue. You know, a mask is a referendum on liberty. But to me, a mask is about whether or not... Um, you take seriously the science behind this disease, whether or not you take seriously your responsibility to be a good community member uh, and protect yourself, your family, and others uh, from from this disease. And I think if all of us were willing to step in and do what it took, we wouldn't be where we are right now, and we would not be looking down the barrel uh, at a really, really hard winter that will mean that many of us will lose loved ones um, and that all of us will be hurting for it. Dr. El Sayed, you're a Democrat. If you'd won the nomination uh, back in 2018 and gone on to victory in November 2018, you would have been dealing with the same Republican legislature that Gretchen Whitmer has had to deal with. Is the legislature equipped, in your opinion, to cooperate with the governor, which the Supreme Court says she's supposed to do according to the law and the Constitution, uh, or are they simply an impediment uh, forcing the governor to do what she did? a couple of issues here. Um, Number one, you know, if the legislature were more interested in protecting Michiganders, then I think they'd be cooperating a lot more clearly with the governor. Unfortunately, what I've seen happening is that the GOP right now is under this spell of Trumpism, um, where everybody is so worried about about, about, uh, being on the wrong side of Donald Trump uh, 
um, that they follow his line even when they know that what he is saying and what he is doing is absurd. It doesn't meet the basic standards of decency or science. And, um, and you're seeing that now, right? And uh, a lot of the talking points seem uh, pulled directly from a Donald Trump tweet. I wish that the, the GOP legislature uh, were willing uh, to have a backbone, to have a spine, to uh, step up and say that Donald Trump does not speak for our party, does not speak for us, and that we are responsible to the Michiganders in this state who elected us, and we're going to do what it takes to protect them. The other aspect here is that we know that our legislature is deeply gerrymandered, and uh, we have an independent redistricting commission. I'm really looking forward to what they're able uh, to come together around, and I, I doubt that um, you're going to see the same kind of choking of the legislature by uh, the GOP because of the way that the maps are drawn. So, um, you know, those two issues themselves make, uh, unfortunately, the legislature uh, a real impediment to doing the obvious things that we need to do to take on this pandemic. And I, I don't say that simply as a partisan. Of course, yes, I am a Democrat and I'm a progressive Democrat. Um, but I say that as a scientist and a doctor who's really worried about what's happening in our state right now and wants to make sure that we are equipped as a government to save lives because without government's ability to do it, I really worry about what could happen in the winter. You are a citizen and resident of Southeast Michigan. I know in your family you have somebody who comes from St. Louis, Gratiot County. That's outstate. But that's, that's where most of the Republicans in the legislature come from, outstate. And I think they're worried about business uh, being deep-sixed by COVID-19. And that's one of the reasons they've been reluctant to support a lot of the stuff that Gretchen Whitmer has put in place, wouldn't you say? I hear that, and I hear that concern, and we've got to make sure that our businesses make it through. But the way to do this isn't to deny the science and deny the pandemic, because, of course, there are two reasons that a business will shut down. One is that, uh, you know, you, you, you are worried about shutting it down because of the consequences of, uh, of a shutdown order. But the other is that there's not demand, and uh, people are too worried about getting sick um, that they just stop going to give establishments and that really has been the cause of a lot of the economic downturn right now. People's worry about the virus, which tells us that the most important thing we can do is defeat the virus. And then um, in the process of doing that, empowering businesses by making sure that they have the capital and the resources that they need to survive. That is a federal responsibility. And we know that the federal government has not been willing to enact another tranche uh, of, 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 of um, stimulus in the context of this pandemic. And that's really where our energies and our focus ought to go. Um, and then the last thing I'll say here is that this wave of this pandemic is going to hit these outstate communities the hardest. Right early on in the pandemic, it was based in cities. And, you know, you were seeing big outbreaks in Detroit and in southeast Michigan. Now it's had time to spread everywhere. And I worry because a lot of these outstate communities don't have the same hospital resources uh, that we have in southeast Michigan. And those hospitals are more likely to be overwhelmed by uh, the onslaught of cases. That's what we're seeing. OK, we've got to take we got to take a break here, but we're going to come back and continue this conversation. Stay tuned for our conversation with Abdul El Sayed. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the other line with us Abdul El Sayed, who has offered some very interesting and insightful observations about COVID-19. Uh, let me just start by asking a simple question. Uh, what about Thanksgiving? It looms just two weeks away. Uh, should 
families be gathering for Thanksgiving in Michigan? Bill, I'll tell you this. I love Thanksgiving. It is one of my favorite holidays. I mean, turkey and football, you can't go wrong. And I'm really, really uh, sad because I know that Thanksgiving this year is not going to feel like Thanksgiving in the past simply because it's just not that safe to be uh, engaging in a large family atmosphere for multiple hours together um, as the pandemic rages. And so my advice to folks is to be really, really careful. You know, if you can, uh, you know, cook your turkey uh, at home with your nuclear family and um, uh, in your immediate family and then maybe connect via Zoom or uh, or, or, or something else so that you can share the experience together and maybe eat together, that, that would be the safest approach. And I hate to say that because I love seeing my whole family on Thanksgiving. It is one of my favorite times of the year. But I'm just really worried about, um, about what the COVID-19 virus could do, you know, rip-roaring through uh, some of our more vulnerable members of our family, like my grandparents. And so uh, we're going to forego the kind of Thanksgiving that we're used to. And I, I really recommend that, um, that other folks do the same because we don't want – you know, the Thanksgiving holiday that turned into like a real Black Friday situation uh, where you're worried about the illness in your family because um, you all chose to come together. All year long, we've been hearing that a second wave of COVID-19 would hit. It appears it has hit this week. I mean, the number of cases being diagnosed are way up. Uh, Dr. Joni Caldoun, the state's chief medical examiner, says it's kind of almost out of control and the governor says the situation is dire. Uh, where do you see us going from this point on? What more can be done by the governor and or the legislature or anybody else at this point, particularly with the Supreme Court ruling that the governor cannot do things totally by herself? Uh, she has to get cooperation from the legislature. Yeah, um, there, there are a couple of things. And I'll, I'll say that, uh, you know, Dr. Caldoun is entirely right. I, she and I used to work together. She was my medical officer when I was health director in the city of Detroit and um, extremely competent and capable uh, leader. And we're really lucky to have her at the helm. Um, there are a lot of things that need to be done. We know we need a mask mandate and not just, you know, on paper, but we need our leaders on both sides of the aisle to demonstrate that they're considering masks because masks are reducing transmission and save lives. Um, but we also are going to need to consider what we do to bring on excess hospital capacity, particularly in communities that are hardest hit, because we know that we, if we are, a, if we are uh, in a situation where we are overflowing hospitals, that's when the death rate goes way up because people who need medical care don't have access to it. And then lastly, um, thinking about the kind of institutions that we want to stay open and we want to protect means that we're going to have to be thinking about which ones uh, maybe are not so important and are not mission critical. And these are decisions that ideally the legislature uh, and the governor would make together uh, rather than the legislature turning in this into some sort of political football in the middle of a pandemic uh, just to get one over on, 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 on the governor who's been leading with uh, alacrity, aplomb, and, and, and according to the science uh, in, in this circumstance. And so we've all got to get together and realize that this is about saving lives in our state. This is not about some... Um, a uh, false dichotomy between freedom and, and public health. This is about uh, protecting people we love in our communities uh, and getting through this together and hopefully, hopefully uh, re realizing that if we reach across the aisle, maybe there's some more unity that we might find uh, to be able to do other really important things too. Dr. El Sayed, one of the things we heard last spring was that hospitals might be overwhelmed with the number of patients from COVID-19. They didn't have enough equipment to cope with them. 
And then it appeared that COVID-19 had receded somewhat in the summer and early fall. And you would think that the hospitals at this point would have the amount of equipment they need to be able to handle this second wave. But I'm now hearing that uh, hospitals, again, could be overwhelmed. What do you think? Yeah, it's a frightening circumstance, and, and that's true. And I just want to explain a little bit about why. A lot of what we did in the early uh, spring and, and, and early summer uh, to accommodate the increased number of cases in those hospitals was move resources across the country to the hardest-hit communities. The problem now is that over time, COVID-19 has spread from those hardest-hit communities, places like Detroit or, uh, or, or Southeast Michigan generally or you know, uh, New York or Seattle, and it's, it's, it's spread into every corner of the, uh, the, the country. And because um, of the, you know, the, the, the change in weather and people moving uh, indoors, the spread has increased, but that's spread everywhere. And so our ability now to move uh, equipment and personnel into those hospitals that are hardest hit is limited because almost everywhere is now hardest hit. And um, folks have to recognize that um, the places that are going to get hit the worst are those communities that don't have the experience dealing with this and whose hospital capacity is minimal. And we've got an epidemic of hospital closures across rural Michigan and across rural America, uh, which has been driven by a profit motive and profit-driven healthcare system for a long time. And now uh, those communities are seeing what little hospital capacity that they have completely overwhelmed by COVID. And this is why uh, I'm, I'm so worried about this moment and also why it's so important for us not to forget um, that the circumstances that led us to this moment are circumstances we should have been dealing with and fixing for a long time. Nobody in America should go without a hospital at least an hour away from them. And unfortunately, too many people in rural communities uh, have to drive an hour, two hours to get to a hospital that's poorly equipped and not well funded because those hospitals aren't as lucrative uh, as hospitals in, in more urban and suburban communities. And so this is showing us a lot of the structural uh, problems in our healthcare system and our society at large. And I really hope that beyond just taking on this pandemic, that we solve the circumstances that allowed it to get so bad in the first place. One of the countries that's handled things differently is Sweden. I'm just curious if you've studied what they do. We're just about out of time, but I'd be interested in your impression. Yeah, what they did early on is they uh, allowed the virus to spread in their in their communities. But a lot of what the data has shown is that um, because of their approach, they had the highest per capita mortality rate in the world, um, not as high as ours in absolute numbers just because they're a far smaller country. But per capita, per individual, they had more deaths than any other place in the world. And so what that shows us is that physical distancing matters. Um, and that we should have been all along making sure that the virus was spreading uh, more slowly insofar as it was spreading uh, by making sure that we were protecting folks and, and keeping some of those institutions that are big spreaders uh, closed. When you look around the country, are there any other states that you would cite as doing a particularly good job of handling the coronavirus compared to Michigan? I'll be honest, Michigan has done a, a pretty good job given the leadership of Governor Whitmer. Um, but the problem here is that our public health agencies are meant to be run from the top down. And without a strong federal response, as you know, we have not had from the very beginning uh, of this pandemic, it's been left to uh, localities and states to try and take this on on their own. And they're just, they're just limited in what they can do. A state can't organize a, uh, a, 
access to PPE, personal protective equipment, or, uh, or tests that requires an international supply chain. Uh, it just can't do that. And so um, almost every state has been hampered, right, handicapped by the failure of our federal government to act decisively and to take this as seriously as they should have from the very beginning. A year from now, do you think we'll still be talking about this the way we are right now? I think the experience of it will have changed substantially. I certainly hope so. I think the onboarding of a vaccine and um, and the potential there is, is really, really important. But, you know, I, I think we're going to be talking about this pandemic like like uh, some of our seniors talk about um, their experience with World War II or you know, their parents talked about the Great Depression. And, um, you know, this is going to fundamentally change the way we think about our own society uh, and their response to things, I think, moving forward. And it should. Um, it should. But... Hopefully, we'll be out of this mass physical distancing circumstance, and uh, we'll be back to the ability to, you know, say, enjoy Thanksgiving together without having to worry about uh, our, our, our parents or grandparents getting sick. Do you think we'll – well, I was about ready to ask you another question. <laughs> I've got so many more I could ask, but you've done such a tremendous job of laying out the scenario here from March to the present and going into the future – Dr. Abdul El Sayed, who was the chief medical, excuse me, chief health officer for the city of Detroit, candidate for governor in 2018, and is still doing yeoman work in his own way, in a very effective way, fighting COVID-19 in Southeast Michigan. Thank you so much, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Bill, it's been a privilege. Thank you for having me. We'll be back next week with. Still more.